before you start rolling the tape, it's rebuttal time to the uh, hospitality. And then on to uh, other things, more important things. The story is told of uh, the time when the uh, Pope met with his cardinals to discuss a proposal from the Prime Minister of Israel. They said, Your Holiness, I said one of the cardinals, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel wants to challenge you to a game of golf and to show the friendship and the ecumenical spirit shared by the Jewish and the Catholic faiths. Well, the Pope thought it was a great idea, but he had never held a golf club in his hand. And he said, well, have we not a cardinal who can represent me against this leader of Israel? He said, well, none that play golf very well. He said, but one of them said, but you know what? I've got an idea. There's a man named Jack Nicklaus. He's an American golfer who is a devout Catholic. We can offer to make him a cardinal, then ask him to play the Israeli prime minister on our behalf as your personal representative. In addition to showing a spirit of cooperation, we will also win. And so everyone agreed it was a great idea. Call was made. Nicholas was honored and agreed to play. The day after the match, he reported to the Vatican to inform the Pope of the results of this golf tournament and this match. And he said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And uh, the Pope said, well, tell me the good news first. He said, well, Your Holiness, I don't like to brag. He said, but even though I've played some pretty terrific rounds of golf in the course of my lifetime, that was the best golf I've ever played. He said, I must have been inspired from above. My drives were long and true. My irons were accurate, purposeful. My putting, I was hitting every putt 50, 60 feet away. With all due respect, my play was truly miraculous. He said, then what was the bad news? He goes, well, the bad news is I lost by three strokes to the rabbi, Tiger Woods. (laughs) You know... The point is that, you know, we live in a world that's filled with conflict, you know, and as a result, there are many idealistic yet unrealistic suggestions as to how to resolve such strife. You know, today in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we come to a passage that clearly reveals two kingdoms in conflict. If you've got your Bibles, turn with Luke chapter 13, where we see the kingdom of God in direct conflict with the kingdom of Satan. It's the classic battle between good and evil. And in this particular passage, we're going to look at five areas that are related to these kingdoms and this conflict. In Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 10, we read these words. It says, And Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come adoring them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Israel as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have released from the bond, this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all of his opponents were being humiliated and the entire multitude was rejoicing over the glorious thing being done by him. Therefore, he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? He said, it is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air nestled in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. You know, the healing of this bent-over woman is not just another miracle, if there could ever be such a thing as just another miracle. You know, Luke has been silent about miracles since chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. And in the meantime, if you'll remember, he had mentioned the fact that there is repentance that is necessary. And the gospel always begins with the, 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 the admonition, the command to repent. And repentance is to have a change of heart and mind and also a change of actions to turn from sin and our actions that are wrong before God and to turn to God and seek His forgiveness uh, for our sinfulness. 
And so repentance has to do with having a change of heart and a change of mind, even about the things that we think we understand when we don't, what is right and what is wrong, whether I'm good or good enough, or what all that means, and recognizing who Jesus is as God's only Savior to the world. And so he has been, he has been preaching repentance And this miracle repeats work that Jesus did earlier in his ministry on many occasions. We notice that he was in synagogues, that he was healing, that he would heal all who would come to him. And and there were times where every disease that was known to mankind at that time, Jesus healed people of those afflictions, as well as casting out those who were possessed even by evil spirits. And once again, it shows in this particular passage, you know, the conflict between Satan and his destructive influence and God's power and his compassion. In this passage, we see that Jesus' teaching has gone, you know, unheeded by the established religion. And the resulting disobedience led to this additional conflict. And we'll see that in detail as we go through this. In verse 10, we're told that Jesus is in a synagogue, that he is teaching. And it's significant because it'll be the final time that he appears in such a place to teach. From this passage, uh, we'll examine these five truths. First of all, I want to point out to your attention in your outline the condition of the woman. We're told in verses 10 and 11, as Jesus was teaching, that he beheld a woman in the synagogue who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double and she could not stand up. The word that's used there as far as being bent or bent over or bent double uh, is a medical term as Dr. Luke could only give us in medical terminology. And it indicated she had a very serious type of bone fusion or, or a, a muscular paralysis. If you can imagine for 18 years she was bent over and she couldn't look up and she would just shuffle along. And the only way that she could look up to see somebody is if she would contort herself to look up this way to, to be able to see uh, a person eye to eye so to speak. And so for 18 years, this woman shuffled around. She was bent over and she could not straighten up. There was no ability within herself, you know, where, you know, you ever tell your kids straighten up, you know, it's like, Hey, would you straighten up? Well, you know, no one could tell her to straighten up to where she would be able to do so. It was absolutely impossible for that to occur. You know, we're told that she was also bound by Satan that she was bound by an evil spirit. And it goes on to tell us, and Jesus very clearly says in verse 16, that, she was, that Satan had bound her for 18 long years. And so we have some insight or some indication what the root of the problem was. Uh, you know, the mention of this evil spirit is important because it's a reminder to all of us of the, spirit, the reality of spiritual warfare. That this woman's opponent was not merely her own mor- mortality or even some type of natural process of aging. But there was a spiritual element behind this. There was a spiritual agent. You know, the Bible doesn't go into detail as far as why that happened, as it does in the case of Job, where we see behind the background and the backdrop of what Job had gone through and the trials that he went through, that God had allowed it for his purposes. Uh, And yet we recognize at the same time that perhaps this was the background of what occurred here. It doesn't tell us specifically so anything is speculation. It uh, it doesn't tell us like, for example, in John 9, when Jesus was confronted with the question, which man's sin this man who was born blind or his parents that this happened to him and jesus said neither and there's explanation for us well in this particular case we don't have an explanation and yet we realize who's behind it and that was a, there was an evil spirit satan himself bound this woman to where she suffered for 18 years and yet we see also that god allowed that to take place And so we recognize from this that there are times in life where we're going to go through things that we don't particularly understand all the ramifications of what are going on. But the comfort that we have, the comfort that I have in the the trial that I'm going through even now is that, you know what, there's nothing that can happen to us that can happen unless God allows it. And so we're comforted in that. And even, you know, there are times we just don't understand fully what it is. God, what are you doing? What's the purpose? What's your plan? How are you going to use this? And we don't always have those answers. And this woman for 18 years never had an answer to what it was that had taken place in her life other than the fact that now we are told that it was Satan who was behind this ailment that she had. And it's important also, if you you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, 
it's important for us, sometimes we forget that we live in a world that, you know, there, there is uh, a spiritual dimension. There is a spiritual element uh, to the suffering and persecution that often goes on. And Paul, as he wrote, wrote to the Ephesian church, the Ephesian believers, you know, her situation reminds us of this admonition. He says, finally, in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes or the strategies of the devil. You know, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he warns us that, you know, the enemy has a strategy, as all enemies do. Any opponent, any conflict, there's a strategy behind the, 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 the opponent. And in our case, when we look at our enemy, Satan, and all his evil spirits, God says, you know what, be aware, be on the alert against these strategies or the schemes. And you have to ask the question, well, what are the schemes or strategies of the enemy? Well, the first scheme or strategy that's revealed to us in Scripture is that Satan takes the word of God and distorts it. Surely God didn't say to you that you will die if you eat of this fruit. There must be some misinterpretation or misunderstanding of what God has to say. So many people fall to that scheme or strategy by saying, well, I know what it says, but that really can't be what it means because I don't want it to mean that because if it means that, then it means I got to stop doing that and therefore I don't want to stop doing that. So I listen to the words of the enemy who says, well, it doesn't mean that. Oh, perfect. That's what I was hoping to hear somebody say, that it really doesn't mean that. So one of the schemes or strategies is always to distort the truth of God's word. Scheme or strategy is to call into question the trustworthiness of God's word. Can you really believe God? And the answer is absolutely we can believe God. But our enemy wants us to doubt God. Does God, really, does God really love this woman? I mean, if God loved this woman, how could he allow her to be bent over like that and shuffling along for 18 years of her life? Chuck, if God really loves you, what kind of God would put you through what you're going through with this cancer and surgery and all these kind of things? And, and, the, and the enemy pops into our head, if God really loves you, then why did you get that promotion? If God really loves you, why are you having problems in your marriage? If God really loves you, if God really loves you, it's always a constant question, if God really loves us. And we have to be alert to that. And we have to go back to the word of God and say, you know what? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Even yet, while we were sinners, God loved us and sent his son to die in our place. There's no question whatsoever of the love of God that's found throughout the word of God. But we're called to question God's love. And I wonder how many times she struggled with God's love. And yet the reality of God's word is, therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. How do we stand firm? Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness to live right before God, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the enemy as, as, as Satan shoots those missiles of doubt at us. We hold up the word or the shield of faith that says, you know what, you can shoot them at me all you want, but you know what, my faith is grounded in the promises of God's word. And I will be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that my toil is not in vain. So come on and bring it on. But at the same time, we've got the shield of faith. He says, take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. As Jesus was attacked by the enemy himself, he picked up the, the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and he clearly rebuked Satan with God's word, saying, you know what? That's not what it says. This is what it says. It says, with prayer, petition, pray at all times in the spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And so we have insight as to what we should be doing as we go through these, these, uh, this, this conflict that we're in. You know, Peter would later write and say, hey, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion, lion and he seeks those to whom he can devour. He's just looking for somebody who's weak in their faith so he can just chew you up and spit you out and, and throw you into all kind of turmoil. The point is this. Rather than sit around whining and feeling sorry for herself, this woman who is identified to us by Jesus as a believer in the God of Israel, 
He's told this woman is a daughter of, of Abraham. In Luke chapter 19, we find the same phraseology used of Zacchaeus who said, truly he is a son of Abraham. And it was, a, it was a, a clear indication that this woman believed in the God of Israel. She believed to the light that God had given her. And because of that, she didn't sit around feeling sorry and moaning and groaning. She was a worshiper of God. She lived up to the light that she had. She was not there to be healed. She was there on a regular basis to praise God and listen to his word. You know, I'm sure that this woman prayed throughout those 18 years for God's help, and yet she wasn't delivered. But it did not stop her or cause her to become bitter or resentful. She was in the synagogue. We would say today she was at church, praising God and learning from His Word. And the question that came to me at that point is this. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? How quickly do you find a reason to miss church in the time of worship, in the time in God's word, due to our aches and pains? You know, how quickly we try to find a reason, to find an excuse, and one of the schemes or the strategies of the enemy is this, to cause us to stop worshiping and praising our God. To worship and praise our God. We can have fun when we worship. We can, have, we can celebrate and praise God. But at the same time, don't ever forget, as you sing, it's not for your entertainment. It's not for your enjoyment. It's to focus on Him and to praise Him, to worship Him, regardless of whether it's a new song or an old song, a traditional song or a contemporary song. The reality of it is is that we take that song and those words and we focus on Him and praise Him and worship Him. And we don't sit around feeling sorry for ourselves, moaning and groaning because we're all falling apart and therefore we all have an excuse to be bitter and cynical toward God. And God says, that's foolishness. This woman is an inspiration to me. And many of you have been an inspiration to me. I know the trials that you go through. I know that the conflict that you endure on a weekly basis. And yet you come with smiles on your face. And there's no better way to start the week than to set aside time to come and to worship and praise God. And to learn from His Word so that we are equipped for the work that He has called us to do. So that we can continue to do those things that God requires of us. So that we glorify Him as people see the things that we do on His behalf. You know, and you probably noticed, every time I've had to have surgery, it's like, hey, you know what, Linda, schedule it for a Monday. And uh, I was like, why? Well, you know what, Monday, you got, you know, if you get me out of the hospital by Thursday or Friday, Lord, I will be there on Sunday. And I can't think of a better place to go than be in the presence of God's people to praise and to worship you for the wonderful God that you are and to proclaim your truth to God's people. I praise God. I've never missed a Sunday throughout all of this. And it's because, you know what, I'm not going to sit around moaning and groaning and feeling sorry for myself. If I'm going out, I'm going out strong. And I, and I want to encourage you to consider that that strategy or scheme of the enemy is to take our eyes off of our God and to focus on ourselves. Some of us need to be reminded why we come. You know, the, the, the story is told of a, you know, of a couple who are in bed and the, the wife woke up and she got up. And she started getting dressed for church and she looked over and her husband's still in bed. And, you know, and, and she said, hey, honey, we got to get up. It's time to go to church. And he said, I'm not going today. She said, what do you mean you're not going today? She said, you know what? I'm not going. I don't feel good. She said, you feel good. Get up. It's time. We're going to get ready. We're going to be late. We're going to get locked out. And uh, so I said, you know what? I'm not going today. And she said, well, why aren't you going today? He goes, you know what? Because everybody at that church, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. He goes, you give me one good reason why I should go today. And she said, well, you're the pastor. So, you know, sometimes we all need, you know, to get refocused a little bit on why we do what we do. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, hey, go because it's time to go and praise God. So, you know, the application is very simple. And and I'll try to make this as clear as possible so there's no, no misunderstanding about what I'm about to say. Stop whining and complaining. 
Everyone got that? Good. I just want to make sure, you know, I want you to leave here and go, you know, I think he said something about stop whining and complaining. Stop whining and stop complaining. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you think you're in between. Stop, stop whining and stop complaining and replace it with praise. Start praising. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You know, praise God because he is in control of all things. Praise God because you know what? There's nothing that can happen to us that God doesn't allow for his purposes and his glory even when we don't understand it. You know what? This woman bent over and shuffling for 18 years and I'm sure it was a long walk to get to the synagogue when you're shuffling and you're looking at the ground and you've got to tweak your head to look up to see where you're going. But you know what? She showed up every week to praise God. And what a wonderful example throughout human history she is for all of us. And you know, and the, and the words of Job shouted forth to me as I was studying this passage. And Job said this, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he ever blame God. Folks, I don't care how bad a day you have, how bad a week or bad a season of life you have, read the book of Job, and none of us come close to what kind of day this guy had. And so we just kind of go, you know what? And if he can praise God, I can praise God. You can praise God. And through all of that, he never sinned with his lips. You know what the sin with his lips would have been? Blaming God. And he never did. He never did. Job understood. This bent-over woman understood. God is in control and nothing can happen to us without his knowledge and his approval. The question I have for me is, Chuck, do I understand? The question I have for you is, do you understand? Which is a perfect lead-in to the second point that we see and that is we notice in verse 12 through 13 the compassion of the savior and when jesus saw her he called her over and said to her woman you are freed from your sickness and he laid his hands upon her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying god it just shows what kind of heart she had toward god ever sensitive to the needs of others jesus saw her and if you recall from Luke chapter 6, you know, the religious leaders at the time gave Jesus a compliment even though they didn't know they were giving him one because they brought into the synagogue a man who had a withered hand and they sat him in their midst. And the reason that they did it is because they knew Jesus would see him. They didn't even realize what they were saying. They didn't even realize what they were doing. They were so hardened in their sin and, and blinded by their sinfulness that, you know what, they brought this man in to trick Jesus because they knew that when Jesus came in, he would see this man and be moved with compassion to do something about it. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw her. Jesus sees you. And Jesus sees me. What great comfort that is in our times of affliction to know that our God sees what we're going through. And he is moved by compassion to respond to those needs. Not always in our, according to our will, but according to his will, may it be done. This woman had a great attitude. You know why? Because she prayed and God didn't answer her prayers the way that she probably wanted. And you know what? She's, he's, she's like, hey, nevertheless, Lord, your will be done. And I'll keep shuffling, and I'll keep praising, and I'll keep on doing it until you call me home. And that should be our attitude. You know, they knew Jesus would notice. Here in Luke 13, 12, we're told Jesus saw her. He saw her and he called her. When we get to Luke 19, it's a great introduction into the, 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 uh, the passage about Zacchaeus. Jesus saw him. Jesus called him. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees me. And he calls us to repent. He calls us to turn from sin. He calls us to trust in him. His death on the cross. And the power of his resurrection. He calls us to receive him as our savior. 
so that we can be born again by the will of God, not by human efforts. He sees us and He calls us. And it is up to us to respond appropriately. See, this woman represents all of humanity and that, you know what? It was absolutely impossible for her to do anything about her condition. Men and women, it is absolutely impossible for us to do anything about our condition called sin. It is impossible. We can't be cured of our sinfulness by our efforts to be good. It's by grace we're saved through faith. It is God's mercy and His mercy alone. It is an act of God according to the will of God, not according to the will of men that a person is born again. We can do nothing to save ourselves. And the reason is very simple. Logically, it's this. We come into the world dead in our trespasses and sins. Think about something. Dead people can't do anything. They're dead. And so for those who think somehow it's about human effort to get right with God, I challenge you to consider how you're dead. But when Jesus sees us and Jesus calls us, it is the same word of God that called Lazarus from his tomb. It is the same word of God that says, Chuck, repent and come to me and I will forgive your sins and raises us from the dead. It is not about human effort. It is about God. And all he holds us responsible for is responding accordingly. We hear his voice and we either respond or we reject it. One or the other. Receive or reject. Receive, born again, child of God, eternal life. In God's presence for all of eternity. You reject them. Spiritual death. Physical death. Separation from God. In a place called the lake of fire or hell. For all of eternity. Choose wisely. But it seems a simple choice to me. See he demonstrated his authority in verse 12. Notice when he straightened her. Notice that he immediately, he laid hands upon her and immediately she was made erect again. He straightened her life out. And I like that. You know why? Because how many times have you met people that said this? You know what? I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to straighten up my life. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to try that. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop doing drugs. I'm going to get on, you know, a better diet. I'm going to, I'm going to, I am going to straighten up my life. You know what? In a lot of areas, you may be able to do that. But when it comes to the area of sin in your life, you can't. You can stop drinking. You can stop doing drugs. You can get on a better diet. You can start to exercise. You can do all of those things. But typically what happens is this. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And that basically just means this. You know what? Hey, unless you're convinced that you need to do those things, the external pressure of other people telling you to change your diet, to exercise, to stop drinking, stop doing this, stop smoking, stop doing all things that are harmful to you, you're like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. And we won't do it. We'll do it for a little while. And they go, eh, you know what? Right back. You know what? Gave up slopping in the mud, you know, and, and, and gave up, you know, doing this kind of stuff. And, you know what? And I still feel just as miserable on the inside as I ever have. So I might as well go back out and enjoy the temporary pleasure of sin. See, only God can clean somebody up from the inside. And once he cleans us up from the inside, it becomes natural that the outside will get cleaned up when we walk in obedience with him. Never misunderstand. Cleaning up your life on the outside is no substitute for having your heart cleaned up on the inside. And once it's cleaned up on the inside, all the rest of the stuff takes care of itself if you walk in obedience with him. For the first time in almost 20 years, this woman who shuffled around and pictured in your mind, who shuffled around like that, who had a turn like this, shuffled and shuffled. Jesus said, you are free. And she straightened up. And you know what she did? The first thing she did? She glorified God. She praised God. She didn't care what anybody else had to say. She praised God. 
And if Jesus Christ has cleaned up your life, has given you eternal life, you are born again because you've repented of sin and trusted in Him, received Him as your Savior, I will say that this is one of the litmus tests of true Christianity, true biblical faith. You cannot help but praise God. Your life was a mess. You were in bondage to sin. You had no hope. You had fear of everything. You were, you were in bondage to this, this enemy of ours called Satan. And you know what? And he freed you and he loosed you from all of it. How can you not help but praise him? And in the meantime, who cares what people think? Who cares? He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be glorified. What do we care? That's why Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. And what he's saying is simple, and that's this. You cannot truly be born again without having the conviction to praise God and glorify Him before men. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. With the heart, man believes in righteousness, and with his mouth, he confesses unto salvation. Does it mean that you're not saved until you confess him? No. It means that you're saved the moment you repent of sin and trust in Christ. But if you truly are born again, how can you not praise him? That's the argument, and it's simple, and it's one that we need to consider. And you would think that everybody would just been like, whoa, you know, they would have been having a celebration. Praise God. This woman who has been bent over for 18 years has been touched by Jesus. She is straightened out. She is glorifying and praising God. And here's where we see the complaint of the religious leader. And I want you to notice this because I cannot even begin for the life of me understand how anyone could be so callous and insensitive to the hurt and the need of another human being when he says this. And the synagogue official, indignant. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath. Are you ready for that? I mean, there are three things that jumped out at me. First was the word indignant or indignation, indicating that this guy, instead of rejoicing and giving God glory, the ruler of the synagogue became angry. He was angry. And he was indifferent. He was indifferent to this woman and her pain and her suffering and everything she had been through. He could have cared less. And you know what it indicates? This guy did not know God. Why? Because the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is if you really love God, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You'll be moved towards compassion, towards the plight of those around us who are suffering. That's why John writes in 1 John, the letter in chapter 3 says, how, how can you behold your brother in need and not do anything for him? If you really have the love of God living within you, you can't, be, do, you can't do anything but be compelled to help if you can help. If you've got some way to help, you're going to want to help. Why? Because that's our God. That's our God. He was indignant. He was angry. He was indifferent. He could have cared less. And notice his sick interpretation to justify his, um, his callousness. So there are six days to do work. And he didn't even talk to Jesus. He didn't confront Jesus. Notice what he did. He yelled at the people who were there. He didn't want to call Jesus out because he had already seen how that works. <laughs> but instead, he yelled at everybody else. He rebuked the audience. He said, listen, you got problems. You want to be healed. Come any other day of the week. Just don't come on a Sabbath. Huh? What? And here's where the conflict kicks in. Notice. Jesus' response. You know, in an effort to justify himself, this man ignored the liberation of this woman from pain. He ignored, you know, ignores the power of Jesus, that he had the authority to do what he did. You know, he, he gives no indication of compassion or joy that God has worked. And it leads to this toe-to-toe -to -toe confrontation with Jesus and the conflict of the kingdoms where Jesus in verse, verse 15 says, but... And the word but means this. It's a word of contrast or conflict. But, you know, in contrast to your in indignation, 
in contrast to your indifference, in contrast to your lame interpretation of how God should act, in contrast to all of that, you're a hypocrite. Can you imagine? You're a hypocrite. Well, you know, I hear all these people and it just drives me nuts. Well, but Jesus is, is loving. Yes, he is. But he's also righteous. He's also holy. He's also truthful. And I get tired of hearing lame interpretations of Scripture to justify sin all on the basis that God is a God of love. Therefore, he'll just let us do whatever it is we want to do, even if it destroys us. That'd be like the nonsensical argument to a parent that says, hey, you know what? If you really want to be a parent who is a loving parent, just let your kids do anything they want to do whenever they want to do it. That's just stupid. It just is. I mean, I've, you know, we have three children. They're grown now. But when they were younger, it was like, let them do what they want to do. They were too stupid to know what to do. We're all too stupid to know what to do. That's why we got to go to God's word and say, hey, you know what? There's a way that seems right to man, but the end is destruction. What is the right way to go? I don't know about you, but my kids, when they were little, they would have never went to bed. I mean, they would have been like up all the time. They would have been watching TV all the time. They would have been eating, you know, chips and dip for breakfast. I mean, you know, and it's like that's, I mean, that's what they would have done. Why? Because that's what I would have done. So they're swimming in the same gene pool. So I know. It's like, you know what? You don't say if you're a parent and you're a loving parent, just let your kids do anything that you want. No, you know, if you're a loving parent, you're going to discipline your children when they need discipline. You're going to train them in the way they should go, which is God's way. You're going to instruct them on things that are right and wrong. Why? Because you love them. And because Jesus loved even this hypocritical synagogue leader, he said, you're a hypocrite. Not only are you a hypocrite, he said, you hypocrites. Meaning anybody else who's in this room today who thinks like you think is just as guilty as you are, and you're all hypocrites. And they're like, well, prove it. They didn't say that, but you know that they were thinking that. And since God knows what we're thinking, he said, okay, I will. And he said this. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? Ugh. Ugh. But he goes on to say, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? He said, You guys are just hypocrites. If your donkey or your horse, or whatever, your ox needs watered, you take them down to the trough and you water them. Why? Because you have compassion on animals. And if this isn't isn't a perfect, relevant indictment of our culture that puts on a higher plane animals than people, I don't know what is. And what he was arguing was, from the least to the greatest... He said, if you are that compassionate toward donkeys and oxen and cattle and animals, should you not be more compassionate toward human beings who are made and created in the image of God? If you are so worried about dogs and cats and save the whales and spotted owls, should you not be more concerned about unborn children? What is wrong with us? We're more concerned about animals. I saw in the newspaper the other day a man getting a life sentence for killing his dog. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And I'm not, you know, condoning killing your dog. Maybe your neighbor's dog. No, just kidding. Just kidding. You know, barking all night, that kind of thing. It was a joke. Anyway, so all of a sudden now you got all that. You're killing dogs. You know, yeah, I know you, some of you people let your dog sleep with you and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? That's between you and the Lord. But... But, but the reality of it is, is this. It's like, you know, this guy was going to go to jail for life for killing his dog. Now, there should be some form of punishment so that people don't go around killing anything anytime that they want. But then I consider that we've got people who kill people. And they go to jail for a few years and they get out for good behavior. Now, I don't know about you, but these are the kind of things that kind of bother me a little bit about the direction our culture is going. And we begin to worship the 
creature rather than the creator, we begin to place a higher value on animals than we do on people. And God says to the nation that does that, you're in big trouble. Because you are upside down. And you need to get right side up. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear your prayers. And then I will heal your land. It starts in the house of God. Is your value system upside down? You care more about your dog or your cat or your pets than you do about a neighbor in need? We need to confess our sin before God and repent and to turn from it. We need to get our priorities in order again. We need to honor those who are created in the image and likeness of God. We need to reach out to the world that God so loved that He sent His only begotten Son. He gave Him as a sacrifice on our behalf. And He didn't do that for cats or dogs or other animals. He did it for people. We must always love people. Even though they are hard to love. It's easy to love a dog. Because you tell a dog what to do and a dog will go, ha, ah, and do it. And when they don't, you get all mad and bent out of shape. It's easy to love animals because they don't talk back. They don't voice their opinion. They don't disagree with us. They don't argue with us. They just do what they're told. I thank God he still loves us when we disagree with him, when we argue with him, when we don't do what we're told by him. And he still loves us anyway. When we're faithless, he's faithful. So it's a simple argument. And these kingdoms that are in conflict are seen clearly in this you know, confrontation in the synagogue. You've got Satan present. And Satan in his power wants to maim and destroy human beings. He wants to destroy you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. He's a liar and he's a murderer from the pit of hell. Never forget that. But God loves you. God sees you. God is compassionate towards you. God calls you to come to himself. God gave his only begotten son to die on the cross so that you and I who believe in him will never have to answer and be accountable for sin for all of eternity. Never question God's love. Satan destroys lives, and this woman's a perfect example of a person who was oppressed by the enemy, bent over, doubled over, couldn't straighten up and shuffled around for 18 years. We see it in the life of Job where he wanted us to destroy Job. He would have killed him if God let him, but he said, no, you can't touch his life, but you can take everything else away. You can take his health away, but you know what? I'll show you that he loves me, and he'll continue to praise me, and he passed the test. Praise God. Are you? Are you passing the test? Praise God. And if you praise God, you'll pass the test. Sin destroys. Its end is destruction. Jesus came to forgive us and give us eternal life and to loose us from the bondage of sin, to open our eyes to see God, our Savior, to give us abundant life. The end of all of the confrontation is this God rules. God rules. And in that synagogue, they saw the power of God to defeat the power of the enemy. They saw life as opposed to death. They saw someone straightened up as a person who was bent over and hell bound. They saw God at work. And so do we. And so as Jesus goes on in closing, he says the comparison that Jesus used to teach truth was he told two parables. And he says, therefore, he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? Well, it's like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And he says, and it's also like leaven, that's what I'll compare it to, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal and until it was all leavened. You know, and, and sometimes we see these things and you ask the question, how do we interpret this? You know, what is that all about? What does it mean? And just to give you a rule of thumb for biblical interpretation, always understand this. Difficult passages to interpret, we allow Scripture to interpret itself. And in Matthew chapter 13, when you have a chance, read Matthew 13 because these parables Jesus had already taught and he had already given an explanation. 
And there are those who read this and say, well, you know what? It's like a seed, a little seed that grows into this huge, gigantic kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God will be like. And to some degree, that's true. It's like a little, it's like a little bit of leaven that will grow and to become like the kingdom of God will become. You know, it will be magnificent. It will be huge. And to some degree, that's true. But what's amazing to me is I was doing all the studying. I found one guy that went off on a whole sermon about, you know, what the kingdom of God was going to be like from these two verses or these two. He talked about, uh, you know, it described room for a variety of of beliefs, a variety of experiences, a variety of ways to worship, a variety of types of people, a variety of nations, even went into detail about the great heavenly, the size of the heavenly city, Jerusalem. And I'm like, what? Where'd that come from? Because in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus clearly explained what the parables were all about. We don't have to go on off on a rabbit trail and subjectivity and eisegesis reading into it what we wanted to say. He went on and talked about the parable of the sower. And he talked about the birds of the air representing evil, the devil that came and snatched the word of God, the seed from the very hearts of those who he had thrown it out to. And so we know in some degree that, you know what, the, the, the devil was representative or evil is representative of those who snatch away the truth from the, from the hearts of those who hear the word of God. He went on and said, I compare the kingdom of heaven, maybe compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore again, then the tares became evident and the slaves of the landowner said hey sir you know did you not sow good seed in your field and why are there tares out there and he said that an enemy has done this and the slaves said to him do you want us to go and gather them up and he said no lest while you're gathering up the tares you may root up the wheat with them allow both to grow together until the harvest and in that time of harvest i will say to the reapers first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them and put up the wheat into my barn And what was he saying? He said, hey, you know what? Here's what the kingdom of God is going to be like. There are going to be people who sit in the kingdom of God that don't know God. There are going to be people who profess to teach truth about God's kingdom and don't know God. And they don't sow seeds of truth, which is the word of God. They throw out their opinions. They throw out what they think, their philosophy, all the rest of this stuff. And you know what? And they're going to be right alongside each other. You know what it tells me and it concerns me is that sitting out here today, the word of God tells me that there, are wheat, there is wheat and there are tares. There are those who are possessors of eternal life and there are those who profess eternal life but do not know the God who gave his son on your behalf. And he said, you know what? And a lot of times you can't tell the difference between the two. But I praise God this. He knows the difference. And he says, you know, on that last day, we're going to gather up the tares and they're going to burn in hell and gather up the wheat and storm in my barn where they will be with me for all of eternity. The question I have for you is, are you a wheat or are you a tare? Have you repented of sin and genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection on your behalf and received him as your savior? Are you a person who is in church but not in Christ? See, leaven, and he's talking to a Jewish audience, leaven is always symbolic of evil and sin. So he said, it's going to be like leaven. It's going to get in the middle, and you know what? And, and, a, and a mustard seed grows into an herb, not into a giant tree. And it talks about the distortion of Christianity and that, you know, supposedly, you know, this huge percentage of people in the world, you know, ascribe themselves to Christianity. But the reality of it is, and we'll talk in two weeks about, well, what does it mean to enter the narrow gate for the the gate to destruction is broad and wide and many are on that road. There are many people who ascribe to a Christian church that have never trusted in Christ. And it's grown into this unwieldy tree that the birds have found comfort, the evil one has found comfort right in their midst because they have turned from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God and have turned to the philosophy of men. With all of this in mind, where then is our hope? And in closing, I thought of a book I read several years ago written by a fellow by the name of Chuck Colson. And the book was entitled Kingdoms in Conflict. And I pulled it off a shelf, and I had read it probably 15 years ago, and I went and I grabbed it. And I was leafing through it, and I thought, you know, what's the conclusion of all of this? And here's what his conclusion was in his book, and I'll share it with you now. 
He said, where then is hope? It is in the fact that the kingdom of God has come to earth. The kingdom announced by Jesus Christ in that obscure Nazareth synagogue 2,000 years ago. It is a kingdom that comes not in a temporary takeover of political structures, but in the lasting takeover of the human heart by the rule of a holy God. Certainly, as I hope this book has shown, the fact that God reigns can be manifest through political means. Whenever the citizens of the kingdom of God bring his light to bear on the institutions of the kingdom of man. But his rule is even more powerfully evident in ordinary individual lives, in the breaking of cycles of violence and evil, in the paradoxical power of forgiveness, in the actions of those little platoons who live by the transcendent values of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of this world, loving their God and loving their neighbor. Thus, in the midst of the dark and habitual chaos of earth, a light penetrates the darkness. It cannot be extinguished. It is the light of the kingdom of God. His kingdom has come in his people today, and it is yet to come as well in the great consummation of human history. While the battle rages on planet earth, we can take heart not in the fleeting fortunes of men or nations, but rather in the promise so beautifully captured in Handel's Messiah. Stop and listen. Over the din of the conflict, you will listen carefully and you will hear the chorus echoing in the distance. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Listen, for in that glorious refrain is man's one and only hope. Jesus sees the bent over, broken condition of men brought about by sin and says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He sees the blindness and twistedness and has the authority and power to say, you are set free to those who trust in Him. Have you trusted in Him? If not, Don't delay. Today is the day of the Lord. Whosoever calls upon Him will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we are like a city that's set upon a hill whose light will never be extinguished. You tell us the gates of hell will never prevail against Your true church. You warn us about the wheat and the tares. You warn us about the presence of evil even in the midst of Christendom. You warn us about those who are false prophets who claim to believe in you and yet preach a gospel that is not a gospel whatsoever. God, help us to be alert to the schemes and the strategy of our enemy. Among those are the things that I just mentioned. Take our eyes off of Jesus, to take our minds out of your word, to take our feet off of the path that's narrow and righteous. God, may we become folks who are fully, totally sold out to you. May we become that light that we should be and salt that creates a spiritual thirst in the lives of those who don't know you. May we continue to be pigs for Jesus, completely and totally committed to you and to you alone. May we always love people and put them on a higher plane than anything else that you've created those who are created in your image and likeness, but because of sin do not know you. May we preach Christ and Him crucified. May we not be ashamed, may we not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation for all who believe. God, may we always be committed to reaching this world in the power of your word and by the might of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.